Well, good morning again. So we've been working through 1 Samuel. This is what we do here. We take verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We deal with easy stuff. Well, easy. I'll use that in quotation marks. Maybe, maybe better than easy is straightforward stuff. And we deal with difficult things. And we do this on purpose because, I'll be honest with you, I'd like to avoid all the hard stuff. I don't want to talk about it. I'd just rather ignore it. But God does not allow that for us as his children. He says, no, I gave the entire Bible for a reason. Everything is important. Everything has a reason. And why I've told you, you need to study it and understand it and speak it. And hopefully, through us being obedient to that as his children, as his people, that we grow and we fall more and more in love with God, even through the hard stuff. Now, I say that because today it's not necessarily hard, it's messy, okay? I'm going to be talking about some things that are actually in the Bible. Um, They're gruesome, and so I guess I'm warning you as parents, I'm not going to avoid it. We could talk about it later, but I guarantee you may have some questions from your kids afterwards, How you handle that is totally up to you. Now you're like, what in the world is he going to be talking about? You'll get it, okay? You'll understand um, uh, when I get there. But we still have to deal with that and all of the gruesome parts and all of the horrific parts of Scripture, horrific in the sense of describing horrific, because God, again, put it in there for a reason to teach us and to show us and to reveal who he is. And usually... The gruesomeness and the horrible parts and the difficult circumstances in the Bible happen because God has said, don't do this, this bad stuff will happen. God's people do it anyway and the bad stuff happens and everybody's like, what? Why? Right? I mean, we get that, right? As children, when we were disciplined for being disobedient, we're all like, well, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, but I warned you beforehand. I know, but still, I didn't think you were going to do it. God disciplines, and he doesn't necessarily slap on the hands. Sometimes he acts in horrific ways to teach and to discipline in ways that we don't get, that we don't understand, but the reality is, is we are not God. We are creation, not the creator. And his holiness and his perfection is so perfect and so great And he loves us so much that he is willing to purge by whatever means possible the sin out of of his people. No matter what it takes, he's willing to do it. Even if in the moment we see it as unfair or horrible. God's holiness is so great and our sinfulness as a humanity in creation is so great they cannot be compatible. And so as we read this, we have to understand, and I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you a little spoiler alert, okay? God fixes it. He fixes that problem. This is the reality, and then God fixes it. And so these things that we're going to talk about is to drive us to the reality of how he's going to fix it, how he has fixed it in the history of humanity. So, going through 1 Samuel, privately, Saul has been anointed king. 
And even though he has been very clearly anointed, it was all confirmed to him that it was all true, and this is God's calling for his life. He's resistant and he's hesitant to it, and he kind of goes home. He doesn't tell anybody that he's been anointed king by Samuel. And then when it comes to his publicly being proclaimed as God's chosen king, he's still resistant to the effect of that when, when by lot he's chosen, everybody goes, oh, yay, where's Saul? Well, I don't know. He's gone. Well, where is he at? And they have to actually ask God. He's hidden so well. Where is Saul? Oh, he's over there hiding in the baggage. He's so resistant to avoid, he's so resistant to the call and he avoids the call and responsibilities as king that he's willing to hide in the baggage hoping nobody finds him. Israel wanted to have a king like all the other nations around them. And instead of putting their trust in God who has and will save them from all calamities and distresses, they turn to a sinful, flawed man who can save them from maybe some calamities, but certainly not all. Because no human being can fulfill that calling. I don't know how good of a person you are. We all fail at leading at times. And maybe you're not like me, but I feel like I screw up a lot. And I can't save the people around me from all hardships and all calamities and all distresses. To put our faith and hope in earthly leaders to solve all of our problems or the problems of society or the problems of this world is an exercise in futility. Now, don't hear me wrong, because some calamities, some distresses can be solved or even cured by earthly leadership. I mean, God lays governments out for a reason. Otherwise, there would be chaos. And so, governments, authority, leadership elected officials, they can do good. They are capable of doing good, but there will always be another issue. There will always be another problem, another calamity, another distress from which our world needs to be saved. And there is only one who can save from all calamities and all distresses. Our problems and our anxieties, they may not end while we live on this earth because God and his sovereign power and his goodness he allows them to continue throughout our lifetime. That's just the reality of it. Disease, death, pain, sorrow, suffering. But God in his sovereign power and goodness, he allows that to continue. But for us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he has saved us from the wrath of God for our sins, as our treasure, as the most valued thing that we own as Lord which means he rules over our life. We know that all calamities and all distresses will one day end because either Jesus is going to come again or we're going to die and we're going to be in his presence forever where there's no pain, no sorrows. Either way, our problems and our anxieties will one day be gone. And so when we deal with those calamities and distresses as the Bible describes them in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Until the day arrives that God takes them all away, we lay our burdens and our anxieties upon Christ through our faith and trust in Him. Again, that does not mean that they're gone. Suddenly, like, cancer has just disappeared because I've given it to God. Or stress has suddenly disappeared because, well, I'm going to lay that on Christ and 
I'm going to trust in him. No, it doesn't mean it necessarily goes away. It means that he empowers us to actually deal with it and wrestle with it because our focus is not on the here and now. It's on God. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's the answer. For God's people, that's the reality of life. And today's passage deals with the first real kingly action of Saul. And so to better understand what's happening in this chapter, before we get into it a little bit more, it's helpful for us to know, first of all, a little bit of historical background. I'm a history buff, amateur history buff. I love it. So if you hate it, you're not up here. So you just got to deal with it, okay? I love history. Uh, but this is, we have to kind of get a little bit of background to understand the seriousness of this of what Saul does and what God does in this chapter. And then uh, Saul, eventually, he does fulfill his kingly duties, but the change in him to go from hiding in the baggage to what he's going to do today, it doesn't come from him. Again, another spoiler alert, it comes from God. He does it in Saul. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your Bible app, go ahead and open them up. 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 11. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 5, and then we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the, men that, bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for tomorrow or today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The history between the cities of Jabesh and Gibeah is a bit dark, so this is where it's going to get a little hard to hear maybe. You can read the whole story in Judges 19 through 21, but I think a short summary of what happens, um, and if you're familiar with the book of Judges, it might start to come back to you in your memory. Uh, one day, a Levite the priestly tribe, uh, a member of the priestly tribe of Israel, and his concubine traveled to and stayed in the town of Gibeah. So Gibeah, this is before Saul, right? So Gibeah's the hometown of Saul. So gener a few generations before, 
this Levite and his concubine travel to and stay in Gibeah. And that night, the men of the town surrounded the house and demanded that the Levite be given to them in order to rape him. It's going to get graphic. Not that part. The owner of the house refused, rightly. But the Levite willingly gave his concubine to the men, which is a whole other issue in and of itself. We're not going to get into it. Basic to say is at this point, Israel, because these are Israelites, they have fallen so far from being the people of God that this is normal for them. The priest does this. That's where the spiritual life of Israel is at this time. Now, ultimately, the concubine was killed by the men, and the Levite cut up the concubine into 12 pieces and sent them out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Such a thing, and this is, an under, this is literally what it says in the Bible, this is totally an understatement, that such a thing had never happened in Israel before, and it caused the tribes to rally their armies to meet and deal with the situation. It's a graphic, horrific, horrible situation, and the people are astounded by it. Nothing this bad had ever happened. What is going on? We need to figure this out. It drives the people to finally rally and come together. Gibeah was part of the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin refused to hand over the men guilty of the debauch and sinful actions. Okay, so the concubine is killed. The Levite sends the, a Levite sends the, the parts out to Israel. Israel gathers, except for the tribe of Benjamin, because Benjamin says, those are our people. We will defend them to the death. Maybe to say, they didn't do anything wrong? I don't know. It doesn't say, but a civil war breaks out, and the other 11 tribes go to battle against the tribe of Benjamin. Now, eventually, every one of the Benjamites, except for 600 men, are killed, including the women and children. And so to find wives for these 600 men, because Israel, they finish it, and they go oh, a tribe has been cut off, like they're decimated, there are no women, there are no children, there's only 600 men left, what do we do? How are we supposed to perpetuate the line of Benjamin? So it's like afterwards they go, maybe this was an overreaction. This is where, again, where Israel is, spiritually. And so to make up for their mistake, or overreaction, I guess you could say, they give the men, the 600 men, the tribe of Benjamin, permission to go kidnap 400 women from the city of Jabesh in order to perpetuate the line of Benjamin. This is, can I use a very strong theological word? I think this is dumb of them, right? Like you think like, oh, like we made a mistake, so let's make another mistake in order to make another mistake, in order to, you know, it's all going to work out in the end, right? It's ridiculous, and yet this is exactly what happened. And I think maybe we're not going to this length, but as God's people, we tend to do ridiculous things in order to justify our mistakes at times. And so it's safe to say that many of the people of Gibeah, Benjamin, okay, who were weeping aloud at what happened and the word that comes from the siege of Jabesh Gilead, they are the children and the grandchildren of those 400 women that were given to Benjamin. And so Gibeah and Jabesh have a close relationship together, albeit very disturbing 
and very dark, they have this relationship, which explains why when the people of Gibeah hear what's going on at Jabesh Gilead, they weep aloud. This is not like, oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, they are wailing. If you've ever seen a funeral, even today um, in the Middle East, and the wailing that is going on, that is what is happening. And so this gives us a little bit of background of what Saul does at hearing the news of the siege. He goes, what in the world? Why is everybody crying? What's, what's, this is like, I haven't heard of what's going on. And then they tell him what's happening. And so he cuts up his oxen into 12 pieces, or he just says he cuts it up and sends it out. And this is a sign to everyone that he's all in on this kingship thing. Because oxen are the primary means of farming in that day. It would be like uh, today, a farmer taking his tractor and combine and setting them on fire. You can't use them. You can't use an oxen once it's been cut up into little pieces. That seems obvious, right? And it hadn't been too many generations since the incident of the Levite's uh, concubine, and so Saul's action would have brought up strong memories, and it would have told them, I am letting go of my life here. I'm going to be your king. I'm taking up the mantle. Now let's go. And if you don't go, then we will attack you just like we did back in the day against Benjamin. I mean, he's threatening them. Thankfully, he's not threatening their lives, (laughs) And he's not cutting up a person, he's cutting up oxen, and he only threatens their way of life, which is still bad, but not quite as far as they went generations before. But it's a shock to the society, it's a shock to the people, and it works, and the people rally to Saul, and they defeat the Ammonites. Saul has finally fulfilled his first kingly duty, he protects the nation of Israel. And he has done what some had doubted that he'd be able to do. After Saul was publicly declared as God's chosen king, some worthless fellows, they are described as in chapter 10, verse 27, it says, how can this man save us? They doubt that Saul, one, can do it, but two, that he is actually called by God to fulfill this role. I mean, which makes sense. He's hiding in the baggage. How can this guy save us? Some of those worthless, um, the people wanted some of those worthless fellows to be punished for the rebellion, but Saul checks their emotions and he declares that it wasn't he who saved Israel. It wasn't Saul who saved Israel. It was God's doing. He says in verse 13, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so they renew the kingdom, which means they probably continued the process of making Saul officially king since it was interrupted by the Ammonites. And Saul takes the throne, they make sacrifices to God, and of course, they throw a big party. (laughs) Why is there such a major change in the life of Saul? What happened to Saul to have his heart go from, I don't want to be king, to suddenly rallying Cutting, hip his, cutting up his oxen and rallying the entire nation. That's a, that's a big shift. That's not like, let's take stages, right? Like, I'll take my town and we'll go fight and then encourage other people. It's like, no, he called out all of Israel. What, why such a major change in his heart? And the answer is found in verse six. And it says, the spirit of God rushed upon Saul. 
The language that is used here to describe this rushing of the Spirit upon him, it's the same language that is used to describe Samson's killing a lion with his bare hands. That's in Judges chapter 14. You see, when the Spirit moves, crazy stuff happens. Saul's actions were spurred on by the work of the Spirit of God in him. A man utterly resistant to God's calling is suddenly all in. The Spirit empowered and strengthened Saul to be the king that he was called to be. It wasn't Saul's doing. If it was up to Saul, he would have been sitting in the baggage the rest of his life. It was God's doing. And this isn't a one-off incident in the history of Israel, that God empowers his people. In the book of Zechariah, God's people have returned to Jerusalem from exile. Things look bleak. The temple needs to be rebuilt, and Israel is a shell of its once great power. From all eyes looking at what's going on, this is a bleak and desperate and depressing situation for God's people. But God tells Zechariah that the priesthood and the throne will be reestablished, that the nation will exist once again, but how? And these are the words that God speaks in answer to Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, the temptation of God's people then and today is to trust in their own strength to accomplish a calling or goal from God. If I just, if I, if I just tried hard enough or a little bit harder, if I just create the best situation possible, if I have the right technique, then I'm going to be able to do what God calls me to do. But what's impossible for God's people is possible for God. In Ezekiel, the Assyrians were sent to take Israel into exile because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. Jerusalem was in shambles. The people were scattered, and though Israel saw this as the worst possible thing to happen, the prophet Ezekiel goes, actually, it's going to get worse. Just want to let you know. Prepare yourself for that. But, and what is the word but? This is my opinion. The word but in the Bible is one of the most beautiful, most powerful words because not only are you in a horrible situation, Israel, it's going to get worse, but there will come a day when God will move in his people. He will cleanse them from all of their sinful rebellion. This is what Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says. And this is God speaking to his people. I will give you a new heart and new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to obey my rules. God will send his spirit to dwell in his people, changing their hearts from stone and disobedience to flesh and obedience, from hatred of God and his commands to love of God and his commands. One day, God says, my spirit will be sent and he will transform you into something new, something different and I will change you. 
Paul says this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Paul is speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16, and I'm going to read it all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21. This is, this is what Paul says to believers, to God's people. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, our hearts are naturally hard as stone. Resisted to the love and the goodness and the truth of God. We reject it. But... When we are saved and the Spirit begins to dwell in us, we are transformed. Our hard hearts are softened and the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God and the character of God is revealed to us and we fall in love with this God that we once rejected. We begin to love Him. We begin to want to obey His commands rather than shunning them. We see his desires as good. We don't see his desires as burdensome. And we realize that God's love and God himself is so much bigger and better than we could have ever imagined or known. And his bigness draws us into deep relationship with him. We want more of God. And we can never get enough of him. How does this happen? How does somebody who resists God or hates God and despises God suddenly be changed in an instant to loving God and wanting to obey God and desiring to please Him, not to earn His love, but because He loves us? How does that happen? God does it. It's His doing. He changes us. He makes us new. He strengthens and He teaches and He guides and He loves us. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility in this relationship. When we believe the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us and we are changed, utterly transformed, He does that. But we still have a responsibility to work at being strong and learning and obeying his commands. Okay, so don't, don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me that you have to do work in order to be saved or to have the Spirit dwell in you. That is not what I am saying. That is not what the Bible says. For by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. There's no way I can save myself. There's no way I can save you. I can speak the truth until I'm blue in the face, but if you resist and you hate God, you're going to resist and hate God until God changes your heart. 
The forgiveness of all of our sins is found only through belief in a confession of Jesus Christ as Savior, treasure, and Lord of our life. That is the only way that we are saved. It's the only way that we are changed. In that moment, in that moment, we are made right in the eyes of God and the Spirit of God dwells within us. He tabernacles, the Bible says. He dwells in us. He makes His home in us. But that's not the end of things. The Spirit doesn't sit back on a recliner and take a nap waiting for Jesus to come again. I've got my fire insurance, now I can sit back and do nothing. That is not what the Bible talks about. He constantly, the Spirit constantly is at work. He's constantly challenging us to better love and follow Him and His commands and His desires. And everybody who's a believer says amen and amen to that because every day I am reminded of that area maybe I'm holding on to that I like my power to do this and God's saying, no, let me do this in you. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. It's a lifelong process of being changed into God, not his character, not him himself, okay? I'm not saying you become a divine being, but he gives us his character. He makes us holy. Each and every day, he's making us holier and holier and holier, making us more and more into his image that we were meant to be in the Garden of Eden, all the way back at the beginning, to dwell with God because his holiness is so great and our sinfulness is so great and they can't be compatible. God saves us and changes us so that we are holy and He can then dwell with us. And we have a relationship with Him. But every day of our life as His, as his people is a constant battle to fight sin. Every moment, every single moment of our life is a chance for obedience and just like Israel, we're tempted to accomplish this on our own might and power, right? Like if I could, if I could just be disciplined enough, then everything's going to be okay. And that might work out for a little while. And then after a really bad day, you're right back where you began. If we just buckle down, if we just be more obedient, if we just try harder. But to trust in our own power to be more obedient is a recipe for disaster, None of us are strong enough to obey God and love God perfectly for all of our lives at every single moment. But God knows us. And as God's people are saved by grace through faith, we have the responsibility not to trust in our own might and our own power, but to submit to and live under the power and might of God to accomplish in us what He desires. Another way to say this is that the power to fight sin and disobedience in our heart is already available to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit as God's people. The question is, is are, willi- are we willing to beat our bodies and our minds and our hearts to submit to that power? It's there. It's there. Will we submit to it? You see, God acted to save the people of Jabesh by rushing upon Saul and kindling his anger toward the Ammonites. It was God's power that saved his people that day. 
It wasn't Saul. It wasn't him. And it wasn't the, what was it, 360,000 people or whatever it was. That's not what saved Israel. In the story of the fleece, okay, this is, I'm totally going off notes, so just forgive me, okay? My brain may not be working here, but in the story in the Old Testament, Gideon is called by God to lead the people against Israel's enemies. And Gideon is hesitant. He's hesitant. I don't want to do it. You know, give, he asked for crazy stuff, like, do this, and then I'll know that you're, well, okay, it happens. Well, okay, do this, and then I'll know that you're really calling me God. And finally, he, he submits to it. He says, okay, and, and he gets all the people together, and by the time they get to the camp of the enemy, God has whittled down the people to 300. And he breaks them up into three companies. Where have we heard this before? That's this right here. Okay, I Literally, this just clicked in my mind. I read a, a commentary that connected these two, and I was like, whatever. And now I'm like, oh, it makes sense. He, he, he breaks them into three companies, 100 each, and they defeat their enemies by blowing trumpets and screaming. They don't even... God kills them. He kills the enemy. So why did God do that in Gideon? Why did he use 300 people to destroy an entire army? Because he wanted to prove to the people of Israel, it is not by your might, it is by my might that you are my people and that I will save you. And today, when we put our trust in the church or the pastor or an elder or a speaker or a conference or even paper, and we say, well, if I just do this, or if I just obedient to this, then I will be saved. Then I will prove that I love God. And God goes, that's not the point. I'm asking you to do something that you cannot do. I am asking you to obey me perfectly, and you cannot do it. So I've made the way so you can. I brought my son to die on the cross. He paid the penalty of your sin. And because of that, now you can be in my presence. And guess what I'm going to do? I love you so much, I'm going to change you. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh where there was once a heart of stone. It is by my power that you are saved. It is by my power that you are changed. And it's by my power that you are sanctified. Will you trust me? It's this weird balance, isn't it? It's all the power of God, and yet we have a responsibility to actually believe that he will save us, and he saves us. And we have a response. To, it's all his power to change us and to sanctify us as his people, but yet we have the responsibility to actually, you know, work at it. <laughs> but it's by his power in us to do that. It's just this weird balance, this weird dichotomy. Maybe that's not the right word. Paradox. That's a good word. I like that. That makes me sound smart. It's totally you, Aaron, but I'll use that and I'll steal it. Paradox. It's this, is this a weird paradox? God does it in us only by his power, but we have to trust him or else it doesn't happen. God acted to save the people of Jabesh because they were awesome and they were mighty. No. If you think of their history, holy cow, they were messed up. And Israel is messed up. And yet God saves them. 
God has not abandoned his people today. He has acted to save his people from his wrath for their sins through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he empowers his people to obey him and to fight sin through the indwelling of himself, the Holy Spirit in us as his people. You know what that means? That means that he's going to expose our selfishness. He's going to expose our pride. He's going to expose where we are finding joy in something besides him. He's going to expose those things to us. He's going to bring them to the light of day. And as God's people, man, it stinks. But he says, so are you going to submit to me so that I can change you? I always tell my kids, if you lie to us, don't put a lie on top of a lie. It just makes it worse. But once it's exposed that you have lied, it it stinks. It hurts. There's consequences to it, but it is the most unbelievably awesome feeling when you know that your sin has been exposed and yet it is forgiven. And that's what God does to us. He exposes that sin. Mark, here's your pride you got to deal with this. You think you're all that. I'll tell you what, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of this world. And he's the only one who can actually say it and mean it. And for me, I have to go, you're right. But God is patient. And every single day, maybe he's saying, Mark, there's your pride. I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Okay, that that sounds like he's really threatening, right? Okay, that's not what I'm, hopefully you understand what I'm saying. He's saying, I have the power to do this. Will you trust in me? Will you grow in me? You are forgiven. You are my child and I love you, which is why I'm disciplining you. It's why I'm disciplining you. He saves us. He transforms us. He empowers us to live in faith and obedience and trust in Him. So then as His people, we do that. He does that in us for us to give Him the glory and Him the praise and Him the honor We have to realize, we must realize as his people. And maybe you're not a believer and you're hearing this for the first time and you're going, well, what does this mean? It means that God has provided salvation for his people today. He has worked salvation. Will we believe? Will we trust him? Will we give him the glory that he is due and every single day fight the fight? against sin and against disobedience, knowing that God has not only won the battle already, but he's empowered us to fight it. Father, may, may you, oh, just grab a hold of us as your people and remind us who we are in you. Remind us of the bigness of who you are, that when you saved us, we were amazed, Father, that you would love a sinner such as me, that, that you, would, you would love uh, a person who has hated you and has a hard heart, and you changed me, you transformed me. God, may we not just bask in that initial glory and joy, but, but Father, as you continue to change us, as you continue to transform us, may we praise you and thank you even if it's hard, even when it's difficult, 
to let go of ourselves and to submit underneath you because you are the one who works salvation and you are the one who has worked sanctification and you are the one who has made us your people. We have done nothing but believe. So may we tap into you, Father, into your power. May we remember why we are here, how we were made your people. It is only by the blood of your Son sacrifice he made for your glory. We are weak when you are strong. We are small and you are great. We are the creation. You are the creator. And so we glorify you, Father, for what you have done. We ask this in your name. Amen.